Hello, and welcome to Untangling Science, a podcast about science that's for everyone, with me, Dara Ennis. Now, you probably know me as the menace from ITV's quiz show The Chase, but my actual day job is as a scientist at the University of Oxford. In this podcast, I want to bring the world of science to people who think it's too complicated to understand, but in a way that is fun and straightforward, with not too much technical language. I have a website, www.untanglingscience.com, and you can follow us on Twitter, at Untanglings. I have a blog on the website that I leave useful information, links, diagrams from each episode in, so you can check that out as we go along. And this time, we'll be talking about the most important chemical reaction for life on Earth, photosynthesis. As usual, we'll try to answer some important questions along the way, because, after all, what science except answering questions? So, today, we'll ask, what exactly is photosynthesis? How does it work? When did it first start? How does it impact on the planet as a whole? What would happen if photosynthesis just stopped? Once we've answered these questions, I'll do a little bit on some recent research in the field to finish things off. I hope that sounds good to you all, so let's get started with the first question. What exactly is photosynthesis? Mostly, photosynthesis is a horrible word to say, but we'll work around it. As we discussed in the last episode, a lot of what happens on our planet gets its energy from the sun. This is especially true of things on our planet that are alive. So, everything that's alive, really. One of the fundamental laws of physics is that energy cannot be created. It has to come from some source. You can change its form, you can change what type of energy it is, but you can't create new energy. So, if you have a petrol car, the energy comes from burning the fuel that you put in the tank. You know, it doesn't come from nowhere. And that energy originally came from living things over millions of years were turned into oil. Those living things at some point got their energy either by eating other living things or using sunlight to make something that they consume by photosynthesis. So even the internal combustion engine relies on this process. But I'm not really answering the question, am I? What exactly is it? In a nutshell, it's a chemical reaction and that plants perform it to turn a carbon source, usually carbon dioxide, and water into sugar. And as this takes some energy to do, they use solar power to do it. So in an extremely indirect way, your petrol car is actually solar powered. And all of this starts with two key ingredients for which most plants, like I say, they're carbon dioxide from the air or water that they live in and water itself. First, the carbon dioxide. How do they get the gas inside the plant? It's not like plants breathe, but you know what? In a way, they do exactly that. One of the first things we did in our botany practical classes when I was a student was to paint the bottom of a leaf with clear nail varnish. That might sound weird, but there's a reason for this. When it dried, we carefully peeled it off so it was like a very thin cast or a mould of the leaf surface. When we looked at this under a microscope, we saw the veins of the leaf and all the other obvious shapes. But once you looked a little closer, we saw what looked like tiny mouths. Indeed, the scientific name for these openings in the leaves is stomata, which is from the Latin word for mouth. It's through these little holes in their leaves that most plants on land do what in animals we call breathing. Unlike us, the plants are actually after carbon dioxide in the air, as it's this that they use as raw material to make sugar. Now, Carbon dioxide contains two elements in it, carbon and oxygen. But the sugars the plants store their energy in and have another element in them, hydrogen. This is why, as a group, they're called carbohydrates, because it's carbon, oxygen and hydrogen. In order to get this hydrogen, plants take it from the water, which, as I hope most people know, is H2O. Okay, now, it's a well-known story that Stephen Hawking was told that for every equation he added to his book, he would cut the sails in half. But we're going to have to risk it here. And I know I said I'd keep it simple and not complicated, but we occasionally need to do an equation. These will all be in the blog. So, you know, don't feel that you have to memorize them or anything. So we can't create matter from nowhere. It's the same with energy. Matter has to come from somewhere. 
And plants can't do this either. One of the key rules of chemistry is that when you have a chemical reaction, all of the atoms have to balance. So whatever goes into reaction has to come out in some form. Even if it's in a different form, it's there somewhere. You with me so far? Well, I hope so. Good, anyway. Now, the most basic form of sugar is glucose, pretty much, which has six carbon atoms, 12 hydrogen atoms, and six oxygen atoms. To get that number of carbon and hydrogen atoms, we would need six molecules of both water and carbon dioxide. Okay, I know this is math, so I'll go over it again, we'll go slow. We need six carbon atoms, six oxygens, and 12 hydrogens to make up glucose. And the plant makes them from carbon dioxide and water. CO2 has one carbon atom and two oxygen. So we need six of those to get the six carbons that we need. With me so far? We've also got the oxygen that we need. So now we need the hydrogen. Well, there's two of them in each water molecule because it's H2O and it's got one oxygen as well. So if we need 12 hydrogens, then six water molecules will give the plant those. And that's what it needs. Now, for those of you who are paying attention and who can add up, we will have leftover oxygen and all this, six atoms of it. What does the plant do with this leftover oxygen? Well, actually, it just releases it back into the atmosphere because it's a waste product. That might sound weird, but that's right. To plants, oxygen is a waste product that it releases into the atmosphere and animals use it up. That's the oxygen we use to live and function. It's kind of weird to think that, but oxygen is actually, you know, highly reactive and everything. It, it would damage the plants, so they just want to get rid of it. So... Animals take it in, and in fact, the basic way that most animals get their energy is just the reverse of photosynthesis. We take in sugars and oxygen and release water and carbon dioxide as our waste products, and we get energy out. And because the energy is already stored in the sugar molecule, we don't need sunlight to help us with it. But why do plants actually need sunlight for this process? Where does the sunlight come in, and how does that all work? We'll get onto that, but first, let's do a quick recap. So, most of all, and the thing that we need to take out of this first section is that the living world depends on the sun for its energy, either directly or indirectly. And the direct method is almost exclusively done by plants through photosynthesis. Plants need more than sunlight though. They need raw materials and those raw materials are carbon dioxide and water. The end product is usually a sugar, something like glucose, uh, with oxygen released as a waste product. Okay, all makes sense. I know there were numbers in there, but we're past that now. So back to normal. Nothing too complicated, I promise. Let's see how sunlight is involved in this process. Before that, I want you to think about how you would describe plants. Now, if you just think about plants in general, think of a few words. And I bet you pretty high up on that list for most people is the word green. And that's really not a coincidence. A huge proportion of plants are green and for a very good reason. And that reason is chlorophyll. Now, you've probably heard the word before, and it's this wonderful green stuff in leaves that makes photosynthesis possible. But what actually is chlorophyll? To simply put it, chlorophyll is a pigment, a molecule, that absorbs light from the red and blue parts of the spectrum, while reflecting back much of the green light, which is why it looks green. So if you think about a rainbow running from red on one side all the way through the colours to violet at the end, chlorophyll absorbs either end. So it leaves out the middle bit, which is greenish and yellowish, and that's what we see. And it uses the others, the red end and the violet end, to dry photosynthesis. So when this energy, this light, is absorbed by the atoms of the chlorophyll molecules, it's able to shake loose some electrons. So if you don't know what electrons are, maybe go back to episode one and have a listen about atoms. But these are key components of most atoms. And these electrons can get shaken loose by that energy. That causes a chain reaction where most electrons are shaken loose. 
At each point of this reaction, when an electron is freed up, there's a little bit of energy available for the plant to use, and it uses this energy to create a chemical called ATP. Now, this is the first time we've come across ATP in this podcast, but I'll keep it really simple. I won't even tell you the, the real name of it. We'll keep it the three letters. And ATP is pretty much energy currency for cells. It's a readily usable form of energy that pretty much all cells use to power things. So when it needs energy to do something, it uses ATP as that power source. In earlier episodes, we described our cells as busy factories. And in that analogy, ATP is like a charge battery. It's ready to use. It can be plugged into any of our cells machinery when they need to use energy. And that's what it's there for. So ATP is kind of like a battery. So the plants have now converted the light energy absorbed by chlorophyll into this energy that can be used in the cell. But photosynthesis doesn't end there. There is a second phase that doesn't need the light to work. And it's this phase that makes the sugar that is the end goal of the process. Well, in this second phase, the ATP from the first phase is used to convert the CO2 and water the plant takes into useful sugar and other carbohydrate molecules. So what it uses the ATP for is it needs that energy to split up those molecules and form them into simple carbohydrates and then assemble them into things like glucose or starch or cellulose and all of these other things that plants use either structurally or for energy. The leftover oxygen molecules are then released from the cells where they leave the plant through the same openings that it used to take in carbon dioxide. So out it goes into the atmosphere again and we're done. So that's the basic process of photosynthesis. Now, you might ask why the plant bothers making sugars when it already has this usable battery pack of ATP. Well, the thing is, a lot of plant structures, like the physical parts of the plant, are made up of more complex carbohydrates. So it's not just about energy and it uses those in a different way. It's also a much, much more efficient and stable method of long-term storage to make things like glucose and sugar and starch than ATP. And this is especially true when you think of seeds that may not grow for months and sometimes even years. They need a very stable and simple system to store. And ATP doesn't last that long. Glucose and all of these and starch last much, much longer. So whatever the reason, it is actually very good for us that plants evolve photosynthesis and are still doing it. On that, what do you think would happen if photosynthesis stopped working? Well, it would not be ideal for life on Earth, to put it mildly. The supply of organic matter as a source of food for animals would eventually disappear because it has to be constantly replaced. Um, though actually, that would be the least of our worries. Without plants giving off oxygen, the atmosphere would pretty quickly run out and there would be a really high greenhouse effect and almost all living things would be dead. Not just animals, but plants obviously need to photosynthesize to stay alive. So there'd be a few species that will keep going. Um, some bacteria don't need oxygen or organic matter to live. They can live off inorganic matter. Some ecosystems live like off deep sea vents and things like that. But pretty much everything else needs plants doing their thing to survive. So on that happy note, time for a quick recap. First of all, the green colour of most plants comes from a pigment called chlorophyll. And chlorophyll allows plants to absorb energy from light. And that light energy is used to cause a chain reaction of electrons, which the plant uses to make ATP. ATP is the battery that cells use to power everything that goes on in their cells. So it's their ready energy source. For long-term storage and to make structural material for the plant to grow, cells use this ATP to convert carbon dioxide and water into carbohydrates. Oxygen is released as a waste product back into the environment. And if photosynthesis stopped, then pretty soon most of life on Earth would stop too. And it would be a pretty grim place. What I've been talking about mostly involves land plants. 
they take the carbon dioxide from the air but on the surface of the planet so if they can outcompete other plants they'll have lots of sunshine those not in deserts usually have lots of water they're, they're in a pretty good place to live but land plants actually only represent a very small proportion of the plant life on earth a huge amount of it is in the sea which isn't surprising considering you know 70 percent of the surface of the earth is sea Rainforests have often been called the lungs of the earth, but really seaweed, and to be more precise, microscopic plants floating in the sea should get this name. Seaweed and related plants are all from a group called algae, and the tiny floating microscopic members of this group produce about about three quarters of the oxygen that is used by us animals on the surface. At the other end of the scale, you know, algae can be huge, so the giant kelp that can form massive underwater forests, and these can be as big as, you know, the biggest trees in height. They're absolutely massive organisms. So, how does photosynthesis work for these algae in this different system? Well, where did they get their carbon dioxide and their sunshine from? We start with light first. One of the big issues for many algae is that light doesn't penetrate the sea very well. So most are only able to photosynthesize pretty near to the surface because that's where most of the light penetrates but even there the type of light that does penetrate is usually in the green section of the spectrum and if we were paying attention earlier we'd know this is the wrong part of the spectrum for chlorophyll it needs the red and the violet and the blue end luckily algae have a workaround for this they have special proteins that are fluorescent now this doesn't mean they're colored like highlighters or anything fluorescent just means something that takes in one type of light and gives out another in this case they're taking in this green light and they emit red light which is exactly what the plants need to get chlorophyll doing its thing. So these proteins can give a lot of seaweeds their reddish or brownish colour, and that's why most of them don't look very green. So that's how they get their light. But what about carbon dioxide? What about their CO2? That's more of an issue. There is some CO2 dissolved in seawater, and the plants extract this. But often this is a limiting factor in algae growth in the sea. So this is the real thing that's, you know, that's a limiting factor. This is hard for them to get, and... This is what stops them from growing and stops them from photosynthesizing. Some algae that float, you know, the ones that float near the surface, the microscopic ones can float up to the top. They're able to take it directly from the air. But for the rest, they just have to take in whatever's in the water around them and it dissolves in from the air and it cycles around. So there is some. Added to the difficulty of getting sunlight and, you know, there's quite a shortage of some key minerals in the sea. This means that for many algae, photosynthesis is actually pretty slow. But the thing is, it's done on such a vast scale and there's so many of them. That's why they're able to pump oxygen into the air for us to breathe. So even though it's not ideal situation, it's just done on such a big scale that they can make the air 20% oxygen, which is great for us. Now, I thought we could talk a little bit about other things that use the sun's energy to function. Plants aren't the only things that can harness the sun's energy some bacteria are also able to do it in a very similar way. But one other species uses the energy of the sun and converts it in a very different way. That species is us, humans. So I thought one of the things that I could talk about is a key development we've realised in recent years is that we're able to pump carbon trapped by plants back into the air way quicker than the plants can take it back in again. So plants are taking in carbon dioxide all the time, but the rate that we put carbon dioxide into the atmosphere is much, much higher than plants can possibly take it back in. Fossil fuels are the main culprit for this, and they were formed over millions of years by really slow and steady photosynthesis of carbon, which was deposited into huge reserves of plants and animals and things that turned into reserves of oil, coal, gas, things like that. But we've managed to burn through pretty much all of them in the last 200 years, we've really smashed through like a very, very large amount of the fossil fuel reserves in a short time. 
it's become very clear that our technology-driven expansion needs to have some technology-driven solution to this problem. Uh, or very soon we'll tip our world into really serious trouble. One way to help with this will be to use solar energy as part of the way we drive our society. And we've all seen solar panels on people's roofs and there's even solar farms harvesting all those lovely sunbeams. But how do they work and are there any similarities to plant photosynthesis? In fact, they work in an extremely similar way. The cells in a solar panel are made up of two layers of silicon, with each layer having slight differences. One is rich in electrons, usually done by adding phosphorus, which has a spare electron, giving it a negative charge, and another that is electron poor, usually by adding boron, making it positive in charge. This creates an electric field that is just ready for a flow of electrons, which would create a flow of electricity. These electrons are provided by the sunlight knocking electrons off the atoms in the panel, which causes a chain reaction of electrons flowing through the cell. Now, does that sound familiar? It's pretty much the same principle as the first step of photosynthesis. This flow of electrons can then be collected and sent through wires like other electricity sources. Now, of course, our solar panels don't turn it into sugar, but that's not what we want. We want electricity, so it stops at that point. Okay, at the end of each episode, I like to bring in some research on a topic that we're discussing, and sometimes it's only vaguely related. For photosynthesis, I would like to bring in two different aspects, actually. The first is on how we humans figured out that photosynthesis actually happened and what was happening in the first place. And the second is on probably the most important person who has ever lived, but you more than likely have never heard of him. So first, how did we figure out what plants were up to anyway? The first step was taken by a Belgian scientist called Jan Baptista van Helmont in about the mid-1600s. Up to that point, plant growth was believed to be the plant taking in minerals from the soil and using them to grow, so using the minerals from the soil to build up mass. Van Helmont carried out experiments on willow trees in pots, showing that the weight of the soil really barely changed over five years, while the tree itself had grown by a significant amount. More than a century later, the British chemist Joseph Priestley showed that if you put a lit candle into a sealed glass container, it would use up all the oxygen and eventually go out. He then put a mint plant in the container, and after a few weeks, it was able to generate enough oxygen that the candle could burn again. So this work was then built upon by a colleague of his, Jan Ingenhuis, who showed that this production of oxygen was only possible when the plant was exposed to light. These three experiments together showed that plants are able to take in water and air and convert it into structural material for growth, but only in the presence of light, and this is what we have come to call photosynthesis. The second thing I want to talk about here is a researcher who... It's estimated has saved over a billion lives through his research, and it's probably a lot more than that, actually. He was the winner of a lot of awards, including a Nobel Peace Prize, not a scientific prize, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, and the Congressional Gold Medal. His name is Norman Borlaug, and after this podcast, I really hope you'll look him up, because he is one of the most significant people who's ever lived. But what did he do that has me raving on about him? In short, he changed how we use crops, but in particular cereal crops and which ones we grow. Borlaug worked on what was now known as the Green Revolution, though it wasn't called that at the time. And this was developing new strains of cereals that are able to be much more productive and are able to have far greater yields due to photosynthesis than those that went before. This is vitally important because a huge proportion of the calories that humans survive on actually comes from a very small number of crops like wheat and rice and and a few others. So these cereal crops are key to keeping the species alive. When working on wheat especially, he developed strains and him and his team were able to double the productivity of those crops in southern Asia, so notably in Pakistan and India, two hugely increasing populations and very large populations. And what that meant was that food security, so the the supply of food was consistent and 
wasn't in jeopardy in those countries, and it saved millions and millions of lives. They were also able to produce disease-resistant crops. This was a key thing in, in wheat and rice that were able to drastically reduce crop loss to fungal pests and other plant diseases. He really was a truly amazing man, and it's kind of tragic that the world has forgotten him, but you should look him up, Norman Borlaug. Okay, time for a final recap. Photosynthesis is impossible to say, but it's vital to almost all life on Earth. The plants in the sea are doing a lot of the heavy lifting and producing our oxygen, and all under pretty tough conditions for photosynthesis, as it turns out. Plants take in carbon dioxide and water, and using sunlight, they make sugar. Chlorophyll is the key sort of agent in turning this solar energy into chemical energy. This is what's needed to make these sugars. It turns out that solar panels work in a pretty similar way. And finally, we should all know who Norman Borlaug is and be thankful for his work in the Green Revolution, because there's no way we'd be able to support 7 billion people without him. So that's all for this episode. Sorry there was such a big gap, but I was busy with TV stuff and then I had the cheek to go on holidays. I'd like to end by thanking Neil from Podnose for editing the episode and all of his advice on how to get this podcast going. I would also like to thank Paul Farrer for his absolutely brilliant theme tune. The next episode will be an interview, actually, so a bit of a change of pace. My very good friend Dahlia Gala is a PhD student in my lab, and she does a lot of great work on social media promoting science. So you should look her up, maybe, in advance. Uh, look for Dahlia Science on Twitter or Instagram or TikTok, and you'll find her. She'll be talking a bit about her work, uh, what it's like to be a research student at Oxford, you know, what that whole experience is like, and going to talk an awful lot about how we can spread our scientific message online, and a little bit about what it's like to be a woman in science. So that's everything for this episode, and I'll talk to you soon.